Mark Single has worn many political and electoral hats uh, over the years in Pennsylvania. We recently sat down over a cup of coffee to get his story, including his six-month stint as acting governor of Pennsylvania in 1993. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I am in downtown Harrisburg at Cafe Fresco, a local haunt uh, that uh, we run into lots of folks. And, uh, uh, well, this actually, uh, this this podcast started uh, with a conversation with my guest, uh, Mark Single, who I don't know whether to call senator, governor, uh, lieutenant governor, acting governor, uh, chief of I mean, the hats you have worn. Uh, have been many, uh, but thanks for joining me <laughs> here you. on Brews and Views. And we're having coffee, by the way. Thank you. Uh, and by the way, Mark is fine. Mar- <laughs> I tell people all the time, just don't call me what my wife calls me. It's uh, X-rated. It's not. It's not. Not good. Well, I appreciate your coming <clears throat> on. In fact, uh, we did run into one another here at this uh, this cafe um, and talked about uh, getting together to discuss this as well as uh, just discussing broader things because I think while we. Uh, approach things uh, from a different angle, uh, uh, frequently politically. Um, I think we uh, both share the desire to solve problems. Uh, and I know we'll want to talk about uh, that further as to how we solve some of our major problems uh, here in Pennsylvania and certainly the country given some of the challenges. But uh, I always like to start off with the biographical. Uh, like, where did you come from? Uh, um, and I, I know you were born in Johnstown. Um, and I'm going to ask you if we've we've uh, uh, finally rebuilt since the flood of uh, 1889, <laughs> and if we can get rid of the Johnstown flood tax. But uh, tell me about growing up uh, in Johnstown, and then we'll get into your whole uh, political career. Well, I'm a Western Pennsylvania boy, and uh, Johnstown in particular. And uh, thinking about it, uh, that has been part of my makeup, my tradition, and uh, and the fact that Johnstown is. Uh, uh, you, you know, a kind of a poster uh, boy for uh, recovering from disasters and uh, eventually prevailing even uh, under great duress. Mm-hmm. I've always been proud of that because uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my impression of the people who were working in the coal mines and the factories and the steel mills and so on were uh, hardworking, uh, decent individuals that were trying to feed their families and do the right thing. And on top of all of that, they had been challenged by three floods uh, and made it through that. But here's the point for me, and this was what helped shape my early political viewpoint, not without some assistance. In every case, it was a generous federal government that stood up and said, we are not going to let Johnstown down. Mm -hmm. Uh, FDR came in and completely um, through the... uh, uh, Works Progress Administration rebuilt the river walls in Johnstown and literally saved that town uh, from a much worse disaster uh, in the future. Uh, and uh, there was a, a, an appreciation on the part of most people in Johnstown in that southwestern area uh, that the government was on their side. They weren't uh, giving them oppressive regulations. They weren't forcing them into things. But they were there when they needed the help. Mm-hmm. So I always appreciated that. And um, you could say that Johnstown, um, throughout my childhood, was always an FDR kind of okay. bastion. You know, try it, do it, be, be creative, 
uh, be compassionate, you know, and use government as a force for, for social good. Mm-hmm. And that always stuck with me. And then, of course, uh, being a uh, Catholic, uh, Byzantine Catholic specifically, huh? which is a, uh, you know, a, a distinction that I'm very yes. proud of. Yes. It gives me a, a kind of a, a talking point. There's a lot of history involved with that and mm-hmm. <clears throat> the rituals of the church. And I mean, we grew up uh, uh, as school children singing the mass in Old Slavonic, which is a version of Russian every day, every day for mm. six years. Mm. Uh, and it was uh, phenomenal. Uh, now, we, we weren't particularly uh, uh, aware of what the heck the words meant, but, but we had it down pretty pretty enough that uh, our priest was okay with our singing. Uh, but anyway, my point is that um, that kind of ethnicity uh, together with uh, compassion, you know, for each other, together with uh, trial by uh, natural forces, um, kind of bonded that mm-hmm. whole community. And then the uh, uh, being a Catholic, even though it was the the uh, odd asterisk of Byzantine yes. Catholic uh, made us all very aware and very excited when John F. Kennedy ran for president. And uh, my beginnings in politics really had to do with that. I was a 10-year-old school student at St. Mary's, um, and uh, the nuns walked in at 2.30 in the afternoon on November 22nd, 1963, and said the president was shot. Mm. Mm. And we were all stunned. We were all taken aback by that. This can't be. This is, this is our, you know, John Kennedy, right. the first Catholic president. And who would want to kill him? So the natural response that you did in Catholic school was to um, get down on your knees and begin to pray the rosary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exactly what the nuns had us do. You're deep in thought and you're beginning, you know, as a group to pray. And just at that moment in the rickety old classroom, uh, the old uh, steam radiator uh, went bad and a valve broke. And there was this hiss of steam that in the dead silence of wow. that classroom went off just like that. And I distinctly remember thinking, that's the devil. It's it's Satan. He he's winning. He won today, and he killed my president. And I swear, I determined right then in that second that I had to do something to yeah. fix that. So that's how I got started in politics. Uh, so so uh, uh, you grew up there, going to Catholic school. What did your parents do? Uh, what was uh, the, what was their profession or employment? Well, the whole overall single family was. Uh, hard scrabble, that working class that I'm talking about. Uncle worked in the brickyard, and uh, another uncle worked in uh, the steel mills. My grandfather worked in the coal mines, you know, mm-hmm. as an immigrant mm-hmm. and was treated very shabbily, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, and uh, I remember going um, to his house on Sunday afternoons, and he would tell us stories about how he would come back from work and it would take him an hour and a half to straighten up because he had to bend over in, you know, 30-inch coal seams. And he had a little shot of whiskey, and, you know, it took him I'd a while. him up, huh? I tried to straighten <laughs> him up. But my own family, uh-huh. uh, my dad uh, was one of nine children, uh, and he was determined to uh, uh, give his family a better life. Uh, and uh, he began working in a garment factory in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, called uh, Best Form. 
which actually manufactured and distributed ladies' undergarments. So when people ask me what my dad did, I always tell them he was into <laughs> ladies' underwear and, and so on. But um, just by The Victoria's Secret of the well, day. He, he yeah. actually uh, made products for Victoria's Secret and all that kind of thing and <laughs> knew it inside and out, and it was just bizarre. He was this expert, you know, on, on this. And um, he was um, also a, a, a brilliant mind that could not afford to go to college, uh, but he was quicker and smarter than almost anybody I've ever met. Hmm. Uh, and he was always willing to go the extra mile. If somebody was sewing and he was looking over his shoulder asking for more production, um, he would sit down and show her how to do it. Um, if uh, somebody was typing out an invoice and uh, not doing it the right way, he could sit down and type 80 hmm. words a minute, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So he was very um, uh, hands-on. Uh, and rose to the position of being the manager of the facility. So uh, that's an interesting... Now, was he was he politically involved or attuned to that kind of... Uh, well, where is the politics bug it, other than the radiator it, it, in the classroom? It, it, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because he wasn't. <clears throat> and um, my whole family, uh, I think it's fair to say, were content to be uh, a step above their immigrant parents mm -hmm. in terms of social uh, progress. They were making sure their kids were fed. They were making sure they had them on a track to go to college so that the next generation, that, that was the, um, that was about all you can handle, particularly with six kids and that kind of thing. So he was very cautious and would not uh, venture out into those kind of uh, diversions right, because right. Uh, of his responsibilities. And I admired that a lot. Um, later in life, he did actually run for school board uh, in our little community okay. and that kind of thing. But but there wasn't a discussion of politics at the dinner table or that didn't really penetrate the family life? Well, I, I will say this, that uh, the kids were, my siblings, uh -huh. were unusually gifted. I mean, these were smart children. And as they got to, uh, you know, high school uh, and as we would converge on the dinner table there were spirited discussions uh, and uh, everybody participated uh, but it wasn't really like organized politics it was more like a food fight every, every <laughs> and where night. did you fit in the mix uh, i was what? second okay uh, All so right. um, yeah and there was some leadership expected uh -huh. of uh, my my older sister and me because we had to help my mother raise all these kids. Uh -huh. <laughs> she was she was frantic <laughs> most of the time. Uh, but and your parents put all your all your siblings through Catholic school. Uh, was that uh, we, your, yeah, yeah? We actually started in that direction, but then, in my own case, for mm -hmm. example, I went through eight years of grade school, Catholic school, and then ninth grade at the the, the local Catholic high school, uh, and then voluntarily chose to go into the public school system. It just so happened that in Johnstown, the where we lived, which uh, the suburb was called Westmont, uh, the Westmont School District was exceptional, and we knew it. You know, for mm -hmm. some reason, they were very lucky that they had recruited some excellent teachers. And, and to be honest about it, there was a little bit of social climbing. You know, my my dad made the decision to move us up from uh, the. Uh, close to the steel mills no, up the, the hill. In the flood range. To get, up, yeah. up, yeah, out of the flood <laughs> range, up, up the hill to Westmont so that we could, you know, be exposed okay. to uh -huh. uh, levels of, 
you know, professional. So we hung out and we went to school with the doctors and the lawyers' kids and the bankers' kids and all that. And we were still, you know, from the hood. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <clears throat> but it was a good experience because we held our own yeah. and we were not intimidated by that. And we thought, well, you know, we're not better than anybody, but we're certainly not worse than anybody. And that was a lesson that was instilled in us uh, growing up. And so, did you always know you were going to go to college? Was that uh, yeah. some of the expectation? Oh, it was given. That, yeah, it was so. a given. No, uh-huh. There was no question about that. It was, it was just assumed, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, although, again, it, it's not like um, uh, today when college is so overwhelmingly expensive that you have to start planning it when you're about right. six months old. Right. Um, there was no thought given to it, you know. And I remember coming back and said, look, uh, I've applied to two schools that... Um, Harvard and Penn State. Not likely I'm going to get into Harvard, right? Uh, but I did get into Penn State. He says, oh, good. Um, congratulations. Good how luck. You, how are you going to pay for it? He said, yeah. uh, well, wait, wait, wait. Is there no <laughs> college fund or anything? Uh-huh. And there, there wasn't, uh-huh. you know. So uh, I went to college at Penn State uh, on student loans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but... It was really not a big burden because back then you're talking five, six thousand dollars a year. So I graduated and retired that loan in a you know three or four years. And what was your major uh, at Penn State? English literature. Okay. Yeah, people assume that it was political science, but uh, I found that to be kind of uh, boring. Mm -hmm. Tell you the truth, you know, there's only so many professors who write books about college and and, write books about politics. And they've never even run for prothonotary, you know. Um, and I had, uh, by the time I got to my senior year in college, I had served two internships in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives uh, under the guidance of uh, Congressman Jack Murtha mm. in the office mm. of Kay Leroy Irvis. You know, so my, mm. uh, I was kind of honing these skills as I was going to college. And uh, uh, I remember going to one class that, the, the professor stood up and was talking about the process in Harrisburg and had it completely <laughs> ass backwards. I said, well, that, that's not how this goes. You know, that's not even what a conference committee yeah, does. Right. You know? And he's thinking, who the heck are you? Yeah. But I said, was, the book says this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So my thought was, while I'm here, yeah. I might as well do something I truly love. And that is to immerse myself in literature and English literature in particular. And what was your plan to do with an English literature uh, degree? That's a very good question. (laughs) And I'm sure your father asked you that Uh, very question. That's a very good question. Nobody (laughs) thought it was rational. What I did do to secure my my flanks was to develop a pretty heavy uh, minor in political science. So I had all kinds of extra credits and things like that. And uh, but what do you do with a political science degree either? You know, right. And Oddly, later in life, I found the English portion of my academic training to be more valuable than the political portion mm-hmm. because I would be uh, uh, writing, uh, you know, remarks or giving speeches, and something from Shakespeare would pop into my head, or something I read that was written written by Walt Whitman, you know, would would seem particularly salient. So, it really was. Mm-hmm. terrific in terms of my ability to communicate and to say something that was reasonably inspiring. Um, I, I decided early on that if I were to engage in the political process, that I wasn't just going to be another, you know, um, uh, 
rank and file vote three times and then go back and right. talk to the Rotary Club right. kind of guy. Uh, I wanted to make a difference. I really thought that I was um, uh, called upon to make some make a change. I know mm -hmm. that sounds trite today, but that was my motivation, and I was going to do it soon. Everybody kept saying to me, well, why don't you get a career first and go sell soap suds for Procter & Gamble yeah. or something like that, and then come back to this once you're... I didn't want to do yeah. that. I was kind of in a hurry, and uh, I found myself uh, able to jump right into the process fairly quickly. So, so you're in Johnstown. You grow up in a Catholic family, uh, very Democratic area. It's probably on your birth certificate, checked Democrat Party, right, <laughs> registration. But was there a point uh, that you said, this is why I uh, identify as a Democrat and, and what are my, your policy development or your thinking about the role of government and political parties? Where does that come into the, the picture here? Hey, I, again, I think it was um, I, the, the discussions among the siblings and among my extended family and that kind of thing. And uh, there was a, um, a sense of gratitude on their part that uh, there but for the grace of god you know we would be lost in uh, ruthenia someplace we couldn't have made the journey over here uh and we, we if we weren't accepted by american society and things like that uh, my grandfather barely spoke english you know uh, in fact he used to tell us growing up that you can't pray in english you have to say the prayers in russian because god doesn't listen to english <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, understand that this was just two generations yeah. away, um, but we were, we were heading in the right direction because of flat-out hard work yeah. and faith, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in what our institutions were, uh, and most importantly, that we didn't take it for granted. We knew uh, that, uh, that that little assistance, that generosity, that kindness was able to propel us, and something my father taught us, if you can give it back, give it back. If you can figure out a way to return that favor to somebody that is also going to need to uh, have some help coming forward, that's what you should do. That's why I'm a Democrat. Okay. And, and let me just be very succinct about it. One of my favorite stories was about uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who in his uh, acceptance speech for uh, this, the nomination, uh, he was at... Uh, uh, in Philadelphia at Franklin Field, as a matter of fact, uh, and he um, he lost his notes. He 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 did the unthinkable. He fell because he had polio and mm -hmm. he got tripped up, and he didn't want to look weak, so he forced himself by sheer will to get back to the podium. And by that time, all his notes were askew and all that. So he presented to the audience uh, a quotation that sums it up beautifully. He said because he was being attacked for being a social activist and a communist and all that kind of thing. He said, better the occasional excesses of a government dedicated to charity than the constant omissions of a government frozen in its own indifference. Mm. And that's me. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm going to make a mistake, it's going to be because I'm too generous, right. not because I don't give a crap about you and your family mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the difference, mm -hmm. you know.
so that's where I am. Sure. No, that's that's a good explanation. Of course, I, I would spin it around of that's a that's a great coda to live by as an individual, <clears throat> not as a government. But that, we're not here to debate that. But we, we will have that that discussion. So so you decide uh, that you want to get into politics. And boy, did you ever. I mean, the yeah. list I kind of started out here. I mean, you served as chief of staff. Uh, you've served as a party chairman of the, the state Democratic Party. Uh, you ran for U.S. Senate. You ran for governor. Uh, you were acting governor uh, for six month period. And I know that that was a, you even wrote a book about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, just a, a, a career uh, in politics. Uh, did, is that where you thought you would as you left Penn State? I'm getting into politics and I'm going to make a career out of that. Uh, or did this just like happenstance, you were the driver for uh, some guy who ended up uh, becoming a prominent politician. I know that was Bob uh, O'Donnell's story. <laughs> so oh. he just became a driver for somebody and that's how his political career ended up uh, taking off. I know we were talking about Bob, but how did how did it end up being a, no. becoming a career for you? Um, that's what I was intending to do. I, I just felt yeah. it in my bones that I was going to go back home and figure out a way to um, um, establish some presence and name recognition uh, and uh, go from there. Uh, it got off to an interesting start because I was working as a legislative assistant and then a chief of staff to a woman from uh, New Jersey by the name of Helen Miner. Uh, and then she uh, was defeated in uh, 19... 78. Uh, boy, I hate to throw those numbers out. I sound like <laughs> such an old man. Um, and, the, and you were in D.C.? In so D.C. You were in yeah, D.C. Yeah, I was running her office mm-hmm. in in, uh, at, in uh, the Cannon House office building, uh-huh. which was remarkable. I mean, uh, I was 23 years old, and I was her chief of staff. And I had 14 people, you know, that I had uh, wow. to deal with, to, to handle the responsibilities and it was, it was very heady stuff. Um, and uh, when she lost, which gives you an idea of my real capabilities, <laughs> uh, I was picked up by a, a member from New York whose name was Peter Pizer. Interesting history there. Pizer was a Republican in the New York delegation and the first person to call for the um, impeachment of Richard Nixon. Hmm. So... He was, was that your counsel? He was no, no. no this was long. <laughs> this was long oh, yeah, before right, me. Right, sure. But he then was banished, you know, because uh, the Republicans despised him uh-huh. and the Democrats didn't trust him. But on his own, he created a persona. <clears throat> I've never seen a guy more uh, effective in self-promotion until recent examples. <laughs> um, but he was he was brilliant and a bright guy, and I felt very fortunate to have the opportunity. But I signed on with him in 78 and said to him right up front, look, um, I'd like to spend a year here uh, or, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to be leaving to run for office. And uh, we talked about that. And when the time came, uh, I went in and saw him and said, all right, the time has come. And I believe it was uh, January of 1980 when I was going to run for Pennsylvania Senate. And uh, Peter Pizer said, thank you very much. I want you to hire your replacement and uh, do not expect to come back. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's really, I was angry. Yeah, and said, yeah. well, you're, you're shoving me out the door, what? Yeah. 
In retrospect, it was the greatest political lesson I've ever had because what he was saying was, look, we're, we're moving the armada uh -huh. in and then we're going to burn the ships so that you can't go back. <laughs> right. And uh, So you better go great. win. You better go win is what he was saying, and that's what I did. Uh -huh. So that was in uh, 1980. And, and it didn't hurt that uh, my own dad was, uh, as I say, a manager of a firm that had like... Uh, 700 women involved so I was like the son of all these mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. people who were seamstresses and people working in the stock room and all that kind of thing and I actually worked a couple of summers there and so they so, knew yeah. who I was uh -huh. and we had an extended family that was pretty large uh, particularly in the heavily democratic sections of the um, uh, ethnic areas mm -hmm. of, of the so it was I thought it was a tailor-made yeah. and I just had to get out there and express so, myself. So you win in 80, uh, you end up serving for six years, but then uh, you're, uh, you're tapped to, uh, uh, or you run for lieutenant governor. That's uh, correct. And are paired up with uh, Robert Casey, Bob uh, Casey. Sr. Uh, so the two of you run uh, in uh, 86, correct? That is correct. That is correct. And I mean, there were, there were uh, several potential candidates. Mm -hmm. Bob Casey was making his uh, final comeback. Uh, he was determined to win. And I kind of liked that because having lost three times before, uh, he uh, was all serious biz about getting this done right, even to the point of hiring some unknown uh, political consultants by the name of James Carville, Bob Shrunk, right. Paul Begala. Mm -hmm. So I got to meet those guys in their uh, kind of do or die mode because their careers were on edge as well because they had had a string of defeats. So Bob Casey was their proving ground. And when I first met uh, Bob Casey, we really did click. It was really mm -hmm. pretty, pretty uh, interesting because it was almost like a father-son relationship. And I got where he was coming from. Scranton and Johnstown were kind of very similar yep, yep. hometowns, same ethnicities and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, the youth and the elder statesmen were uh, a different personality. I was a lot more, people say, gregarious than he yes, was. Yes, yes. Let's face it, he was stiff <laughs> as a board. You know what I mean? So it, it was a nice complimentary kind of uh, so you guys, ticket. So you guys clicked. Uh, uh, some would say that the current uh, governor, lieutenant governor arrangement uh, did not click uh, over the last three and a half, uh, almost four years. Uh, having run in a contested primary and then being paired, uh, some of the calls to say, let's eliminate this. Let's just allow for a governor candidates a pick is running what you what are your thoughts having uh, gone through that process and the, and experienced it i guess uh, in a good way that uh, more or less uh, no, you came together it was dumb luck okay you know so i'm very much in favor of letting the governor pick and do it very much like we do at the federal level have the governor indicate his preference and have that preference ratified by the state uh, the, the political okay. convention mm -hmm and be done with it right from the beginning mm -hmm. uh, because then the governor only has himself to blame if he has compatibility right. issues right with the with the guy uh, so or did the you think so did you think uh, the way in which um, Scott Wagner and Jeff Bartos and Paul Mango and uh, um, the way in which they kind of said here's the person I want to run with that that kind of maybe ought to be how we do it in Pennsylvania yes I do okay yes I do uh, and uh, again, it can eliminate some 
friction later mm-hmm. on. Uh, and not only that, but you, you can start right from that point and be of assistance to each other. <clears throat> because my experience uh, of being lieutenant governor was um, you do whatever the heck the governor wants you to do. I mean, that's your role. Uh, and there were many times that uh, I found myself carrying a load that he either just didn't want or there was it was too much all at one time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I also took the opportunity to train, uh, and I was not going to waste my time there. <clears throat> so I got to know every cabinet department, every secretary of the cabinet. I went to them uh, with two rounds of meetings just personally and had their their top staff with them and said, what's working, what isn't, I, I'm just asking you for candor here. I'm not going anywhere with it, I'm not talking to the press, I'm not talking to the governor's people. This is for my benefit in case something happens. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, something happened and I knew everybody in that cabinet yeah. and I knew what the problems were and we could move forward without missing a beat. Well, that, that something that happened uh, was in the summer of 93, correct? Uh, that mm-hmm. uh, you, because of health issues uh, for uh, Governor Casey, had to assume the role of acting governor. Uh, what was that like and how did that kind of change the role that you had been playing as lieutenant governor? Yeah, it's uh, it was- it was a six month <clears throat> stint, correct? I mean, you had a- Six and a half yeah. months. It was uh, an interregnum that was longer than most people think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, in a word, it was it was stunning uh, because uh, I thought, <clears throat> frankly, that uh, I had had a, a good run so far. Uh, I was 39 at the time, and uh, I had worked in Washington. I had worked very hard. Uh, I had uh, been through a number of campaigns, local and statewide. I thought that I had a pretty good feel for Pennsylvania. Uh, I knew that I was working hard as lieutenant governor, above and beyond what is normally expected, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wasn't out there just cutting ribbons and going to funerals <laughs> and things like that. But the day that uh, the governor transferred power, uh, uh, we decided to hold a little press conference in my office uh, and to make it clear that uh, the ship of state was afloat and there were no challenges and so on uh, but uh, there are so many things that happen uh, all at once um, uh, that uh, I literally felt uh, 13 million people on my shoulders mm-hmm. the governor's a real job and uh, you know I thought I was prepared for it but uh, the tangible sense of responsibility was remarkable mm. was shocking to me uh, but you grow into it fast. You, you have no choice but to move quickly. Remember that the same day that the governor went uh, under, uh, it, under the knife uh, and was out of it literally uh-huh. for six right, and a half right. months, um, Arlen Specter was rushed to the hospital uh, with a serious brain tumor uh, <clears throat> procedure that he needed. So there I was sitting as the, the lieutenant governor, all of a sudden I'm the acting governor, I'm the president of a Senate that's divided 25-25, and there's all kinds of intrigue and jockeying for position going on there. I'm the presumed candidate for governor next year, so there are people setting traps right. for that sure. uh, right, uh, right away. Uh, and uh, then I have the two most important political figures in the state near death. Mm-hmm. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm juggling all of these things and trying to, you know, move forward with some initiatives. This was right at the end of a budget season. 
and there were bills sitting on my desk that the governor was not necessarily supportive of, but I was. You had <laughs> and, I, and so I had the pen in my hand, and we had to make those decisions and so on. And then just anecdotally, just to tell you how strange this was, um, three things happened that same day. Three things. Um, one, I was informed by my budget secretary that there was a, a, a financial document that had to be filed in the New York investment houses. We had been arranging for several months a refinancing of a big prison or something like that. Uh, and it was a, a new kind of way of uh, um, defeasing this, that, and, and I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, but I didn't want to be on the hook. I, uh -huh. I wanted to know who has the contract for this, who was the legal counsel who signed off on this, and so on. So I said, I, I can't sign this. He said, well, if we don't have this in New York uh -huh. by 12 noon, it was 10 o'clock in the uh -huh. morning, um, our bond rating could slip, and this could cost the state billions of dollars. I said, that's fine, but I don't want somebody to sue me, you know, and end up facing charges because I signed off on something that was uh, not appropriate. Right. So I, I had my, uh, my own legal guy draft 10 questions, you know, about is this industry standard? Is this model done elsewhere? Is this a reasonable fee? Is the return correct for Pennsylvania? Blah, 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 blah. And it was Mike Hershock, who was the budget secretary. I said, go and give me the answers to these questions and get it back on my desk and I'll sign this. And so, sure enough, he came running into my office at 11.45, <laughs> answers, which I had for the file, signed the name, faxed it off to New York, and and went forward with the deal. Uh -huh. That's item A. Item B, the um, gaming interest are knocking at my door. The day of. I mean, he uh -huh. was on the table, and they're saying, look, we know the governor's against any additional gambling in Pennsylvania, but we know that you're for it. So would it be a good time to introduce our bill? I said, why don't you folks go away? Says, as, as long as I'm acting governor. There, huh? Yeah, no, I'm not going to yeah. do that because that would be totally disrespectful, yeah. and that's not my role until he's back. Come to me when I'm governor, okay, and we'll talk again. Yeah. And, and the third thing was um, House... And Senate leaders sent a small delegation to me saying, you know, we haven't had a raise in three years. Oh, my. And, you know, you're our guy, and this is a good opportunity just for us to move forward. We can put a bill in and, you know, rush this through, and none will be the wiser. And I said, let me get this straight. <laughs> Casey's having an operation. Uh, he might be back tomorrow, for all I know, yeah. or 10 days from now. Uh -huh. So you want my first action to be to allow you to put your fingers in the cookie jar? I said, "Are you insane?" So this I is said, one, this is day one. Yes, I said, "No, hell no." So I, I'm dealing with all this stuff, and then walking over to the Senate to preside over a contentious body and things like that, and that's the way it was yeah. for six and a half months. So, so for listeners that want to know more about uh, this year '93, uh, I know you wrote a book. Yeah. Uh, that give a little promotional uh, called Mark Single, A Year of Change and Consequences that uh, folks can get a hold of. Uh, and I, I think you detail a lot of uh, what, what yeah, happened that and, year. And modestly, it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, one lowly lieutenant governor telling his story. <laughs> it, there's, there's a kind of a lesson there about uh, uh, when you're close to, you know, power, with, you know, second, if you're a vice president of a medium or large size company, you better be prepared. 
and you better anticipate some things that uh, that hit me pretty hard and you have to deal with it and you have to be flexible enough uh, and uh, gracious enough to do it the right way so there at the end of that book there are some suggestions uh-huh. for folks who might end up in my position uh, and I've urged uh, certain other lieutenant governors to pick it up and take and, a look yeah. at it and see what uh, <laughs> see what they think uh, so uh, uh, from being lieutenant governor, uh, obviously you ran for governor, uh, you ran for other office, and I think you even filled out a, a Senate term uh, uh, after the fact, uh, uh, being in the governor's office. Um, did you? When did you finally say, you know what, I'm done running for public office? Uh, <laughs> well, actually... Uh, or are you not done? I, are you here I, to announce... Uh, <laughs> I left uh, public office uh, not by choice. <laughs> All right. Um, and... Uh, it was a uh, it was a tough election in 1994, and the circumstances were not good for Democratic candidates. But throughout it, I had maintained a uh, eight to ten percent lead, uh, and uh, we walked through the primary fairly easily. Uh, got into the general election against uh, Tom Ridge, mm-hmm. um, who at that time really was not well known, and we thought. We, Congressman from Erie, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. And and Tom and I were uh, good friends, actually. And we had a cordial relationship during and after that election. I just want to state that mm-hmm. for the record. But the campaign was brutal. Campaign was brutal. And there were some really questionable things that were done mostly by their side. I'll claim some, some. some blame, <laughs> some blame on our side. But the issue that turned it was a, a, a really... Uh, uh, Willie Horton type yes. thing that occurred. Right. Uh, somebody that had been granted a pardon in the Casey Single administration, a commutation actually, um, and he was supposed to be left out into a halfway house in New York. He was put onto the streets. He committed uh, rape and murder about a month before the election, and it was stupefying. It was just a lightning bolt, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just uh, uh, difficult to recover from that. Uh, I had nothing to do with it, of course, but uh, I did vote to grant the commutation. That is true, but I didn't sign uh, uh-huh. the document. And, uh, and looking but back, but as on, we know in politics, that it, doesn't it, it, matter. It, it, exactly. The perception was, <laughs> hey, sure. in fact, I came home in the middle of that, and they ran some brutal ads. And I remember coming back to my uh, four-year-old, and he said, "Daddy, uh, kids at school are saying you murdered somebody. What's that about?" Are you a murderer? So, I mean, that's the effect that it had on, you know, the the tone of the campaign and me personally and all that. So because of that incident, we went from eight points ahead to seven points behind in a 36-hour stretch. And then we had to slug it through to get close, and we did. We recovered and got to 3%, and we almost won. Looking back on the... uh, not to sound too nerdy about the statistics, but in that year, we could actually measure this because we were doing uh, constant polling mm-hmm. and in the field a lot. Uh, there was a 5% uh, drop-off uh, from uh, the Clinton unpopularity. This was in the middle of his first term. Sure. So there were people that were dead set against Democrats, and they yeah. hated Bill Clinton yeah. right in the middle of that term. There was in a contract with America, yeah, being rolled yeah, out we, by the Republicans, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Newt Gingrich was ascending, yep. and he was declining, and he had 
problems in his first years. Um, uh, the Casey lukewarm endorsement, we could measure. People were, you know, whispering. That being well, of, of your candidacy. Yeah, right? yeah. it was, uh, where's the governor and all that. That accounted for about a, a 10 point hmm. uh, or a five point uh, reduction. And then the McFadden swing was about 15. We had to make up 25 percentage points in order to get close. And by November of the election, we had made up 22 of them, mm. but just short. A little short. So very, very bittersweet, you know, and, and uh, very difficult uh, defeat to swallow. Did you think that was the end of your political career? Or was this just a, hey, a setback? Because uh, you're still fairly young at this at, time. Yeah, at that yeah. point, I thought maybe there was a, um, uh, maybe there was a comeback in the future, but I had to go and make a living. Uh-huh. So I started, uh, since I had no marketable skills whatsoever, <laughs> I became a English, lobbyist. English lit degree, <laughs> exactly. was it? <laughs> English lit, you know, poli sci. But I had experience and I had contacts and I had, you know, goodwill. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think people knew that I was a straight shooter and I wasn't, I didn't mislead folks and so on. So that translated into a, uh, successful career as a government uh, affairs mm-hmm. specialist, first on my own, then connected with a law firm, and then back into my own small firm uh, and that kind of thing. So I, I was doing the same thing that I was doing as a public servant, but now I could charge people for it, which was a good thing. Uh-huh. Um, but it got to be pretty tedious. It, it got to be pretty... Um, uh, um, um, mundane, you know, having been in the front of the crowd, yep. ginning people up into <clears throat> rally mode uh-huh. and, you know, speaking great truths <laughs> from the uh-huh. podium. Uh, I miss that. I miss that. So I really fully expected that at some point I would have gotten back into the process. I think the door closed um, when um, my good friend Jack Murtha passed away. He was the heart and soul of my uh, congressional district growing up, and he had always been my ally, and we had always been close. And truth be told, we had had some conversations about me succeeding him, uh-huh. uh, and uh, the reality is that he never sent that memo around, <laughs> <laughs> and he died unexpectedly uh, you know, in a weird operation that uh, nobody expected uh, for, him, for him to pass away. So I went back home and said, look, I'm kind of trained for this. You know, mm-hmm. I've learned a lot. Uh, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to take up the challenge of the declining economy here in Johnstown, uh, making sure that you don't get short shrift in redistricting, making sure that somebody goes down there that understands all the deals that Jack Murtha had made, <laughs> and he was the king of pork, uh-huh. and he had he had uh, arrangements all over the country right. because of his uh, seniority on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, I knew what they were. Mm. He and I had talked about them, and we had done some great things for Pennsylvania when he and, for example, Bud Schuster were were collaborating, mm-hmm. uh, and and so on. So I tried to go back home and say, folks, um, I would love to do this. You know what I mean? I'm taking a risk here. I'm putting all of my financial and pension and future at stake. But it's my home area, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll try to save it if I can, if you mm-hmm. if you let me. And the collective wisdom of the population in Johnstown was, 
Uh, not so much, Mark. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> well, but no thanks, thanks but no thanks. <laughs> and I wasn't, you know, I was a little bit yeah, taken sure. aback. By, and I could have stayed and slugged it out and all that. But here I am back where I started with four or five people in a primary election. And I said to my wife, I'll be, I'll be damned if I'm going to finish second in a primary race and spend the family fortune right. trying to do it. The risk was just too mm-hmm. too high. So I came back home uh, to Hershey now mm-hmm. uh, in Harrisburg and kind of um, revitalized the consulting firm and did that and uh, am still kind of uh, in that mode. So uh, t- give me your assessment of where things stand today. Um, I mean, uh, you being a longtime Democrat, uh, and I'd say kind of the Western Pennsylvania Democrats, probably more conservative than what we're seeing winning today, right? I mean, we're here we're on the heels of even primaries and other areas where these Democratic socialists uh, are beating longtime incumbents. Uh, you saw the Bernie Sanders run against Hillary Clinton generate a lot of movement. Um, I mean, it seems we've gone from liberal to progressive to socialist that that seems to be a, a hot trend in the Democratic Party. Could could a Mark Single uh, be elected uh, statewide uh, uh, today, given kind of what it seems, at least for me, as obviously not a Democratic operative? I mean, is there are there some really shifting winds in the political party, uh, the Democratic Party today? Uh, not as much as you okay. think. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I hear the narrative, particularly from some of the Republican operatives who are saying, you guys are all going to socialism, right. that kind of thing. Look at this woman in Brooklyn. Well, <laughs> guess what? That's a very yeah. liberal section. You know what I mean? Uh, and the millennials definitely have a different perspective on things, but it's not uh, as, as firmly based in ideology as it is in uh, it's our turn. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, that's what's kind of exciting folks, people with a message and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it's definitely not socialist or communist. There are aberrations and there are uh, unexpected wins and that kind of thing. Where I think the model for Democrats are going um, is Connor Lamb, uh, somebody who stands up in a western Pennsylvania district that went 19 yeah. percent for Trump and says, look, I'm just going to tell you the truth. This is what I believe, and this is where I diverge. But do you think that he could actually win a traditional Democratic primary? I mean, because then you can contrast that with uh, a John Fetterman, uh, who is clear, you know, endorsed by Bernie Sanders, uh, has certainly embraced <laughs> a lot of the socialist ideas. Um, I mean, that's that was the statewide yeah. pick. Uh, I, I, again, I think that we we play with words a little bit too frivolously. Uh, even uh, uh, Fetterman. Um, is a thoughtful guy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, and he has, uh, uh, you know, espoused some of the more uh, uh, left policies of like a Bernie Sanders and so on. But that doesn't mean he's outside of the tent. That means that he can sure. make his case and argue for it and that kind of thing and then come to some kind of consensus. So what you're saying, I think, with these um, sporadic uh, uprisings of far left talk is the reaction to what we're looking at on the other side and saying, oh my God, are these people serious? 
they want to roll back to the 1950s or the 1850s. You know, they're talking about eliminating Social Security. They're talking about a bunch of crazy stuff that is uh, unfortunately uh, not good. Which is probably not, which is also, I mean, maybe this is where we have our jostling of like, you know, that's such a fringe that anybody's talking about that. That's the exact point. Right. That's their fringe. So we use these fringes as the way we battle against Exactly. And I'm I'm willing to make this deal with you right now. If we just ignore the fringes, (laughs) let's have at it. Right. And let's talk about candidates on a personal can basis. we do that i mean and that, that and that's a sincere question because it just seems that no matter what media you're talking about whether it's fox news or msnbc they latch on to those fringes which then drowns out those of us and i i say you yeah. and i that say you know what we have a real pro- we have a financial problem of pensions it's it's killing school districts and municipalities and we have to solve that but because we're so focused on this fringe stuff uh, and that the media just kind of feeds that rather than, ta- I mean, that's my that's my concern, is well, that we can't really get down to the problem solving that we need, right? Yeah, back to, uh, back to an area of agreement. Um, I think the media has mishandled things so badly mm. uh, over the last couple of years. When I first heard uh, candidate Trump uh, issuing a Twitter, and I woke up, I'll never forget it's this. It's a tweet. This is you know. yeah, yeah, issuing a tweet. Yeah, yeah. Shows you shows you my right, acumen right. here. But, but anyway, um, I, I woke up uh, and was watching the Today Show, and his picture is on the screen with them scrolling the actual tweet. Yeah. And I'm thinking, are you serious? Oh my goodness, yes. This is yeah. this is one candidate. There's 21 of them on the Republican side. There's four of them, you know, on the Democratic mm-hmm. side. Whatever. We're, why does this guy get top billing? And the answer to that is because he is that self-promoting. He yes. doesn't care. He's going to go out and spit out anything he wants. I could have picture him in his bathroom waking up. Oh, here's how I'm going to I'm going to confuse things today. But shame on the media for tweeting for for using that yeah. like real news. Well, I think we I don't know made, if it was they created this that's monster. Right. I think that uh, I, maybe it's the New York Times that uh, calculated. Uh, the uh, earned media amount uh, or what we required to purchase the level of media coverage that he got. And it was astronomical. Astronomical. Uh, and that astronomical. kind of created the monster, uh, uh, if you will. Uh, yeah, but, but here's the, the worst offender, I think, is, first of all, I chastise the entire media for, uh, you know, falling all over themselves to give this guy the forum. Uh, because it was outrageous. He said crazy stuff, and people tuned in to hear what nutty thing Trump was saying. They were making money on it, and that is a sad reality. And they're still doing it today. It's crazy. Uh, But what Fox News did by just aligning and throwing away any kind of objectivity and saying, we we don't care what the facts are. We're going to report and throw you softballs so that you know we can yeah. align ourselves with you. And to this day, it more or less is acting as state-run media for any time he feels like he wants to get a message right. out. That's not objective journalism. That just isn't. So uh, the media, you're right, uh, has got they've got to think about what their real role is and how to handle this. And and can so yeah, I, I think we agree that this is going on on both sides, and yeah. I, and I certainly see it to both sides. Um, but my concern, of course, is that uh, at the end of the day, can we actually govern and solve these problems? And and let's bring it. You know, obviously, 
the, the federal issues or national issues uh, is a whole nother challenge that I don't even know how to get my yeah. arms around. But when I look at Harrisburg um, and, the, and the challenges that we face that, that actually affect people probably to much greater extent than what's going on in Washington, D.C., uh, do, does, does your interactions make you hopeful that we can actually cut through that clutter? And are we doing that? Mm-hmm. What's your, what's your mm-hmm. assessment? Well, first of all, I appreciate diverging away from Trumplandia, yeah. you know, because my blood pressure is already <laughs> too high. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in these midterm elections and whether or not people are going to step up and actually put a check on a guy that I consider to be maniacal. So let's let's leave that. But still your president. <laughs> but still my president. Yes, right? Yeah. All of us want yeah. a president to succeed. Right. But if uh, if injustice and bigotry and, you know, bad behavior is becoming the, the law of the land, then I think we are entitled uh, and it's our patriotic duty to yeah. be defiant. So, I mean, that's where we are. But OK, let's, let's see what happens. Yeah. There. Set that on aside the, on the yeah. on the state level. Yeah. I'm much more hopeful, yeah. much more hopeful, uh, because um, uh, the people are responding to their enclaves of support. They, senators and legislators get elected and are very cognizant of how they got here, who they respond to, what their base is, and they are good people. The people of Pennsylvania are the salvation of our political process, because basically, they're good, hardworking individuals, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether you're a socialist or, uh, you know, a <laughs> which fascist. We're going, which we're going to have some of them here, right? <laughs> or, or fascist, you know, they just yeah. don't call themselves yeah, right. that. So anyway, I, when, when you uh, put aside the real political rhetoric at the uh, national level, uh, Pennsylvania wants to do the right thing still. I, I truly believe that. Now, there are some factors that have to be ironed out. It's got to be a whole lot less subject to uh, money in elections. There's got to be some kind of way to finance campaigns that uh, lessens uh, the, um, uh, you know, lessens the obligation that elected officials have when they get here, that kind of thing. I've always been for that. There's got to be more give and take. Uh, People ought to go in the room when they're... uh, you know, having a conference on the budget and ask the question, what do you need? What is it that you want? Make your case for it. If I can help you do that, I will. And I've never understood why that was so complicated. You know, if if you're the governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you hold a lot of cards. You can call everybody. You can close Mm -hmm. the doors and say, Mm -hmm. we're going to we're going to bring food in here for as long as it takes. If we're sitting here for three days, we're going to sit here and we're going to work this out as honorable men and women because I believe that you honestly want to do the right thing for Pennsylvania. We ought to trust that a little more. Um, and, and by the way, it doesn't have to be as Pollyannish as that sounds. I mean, you can look the other guy in the eye and say, look, I know you're going to kick the crap out of me next yep. year. I know that you're going to run a whole bunch of <laughs> candidates for your party, uh-huh. and it's going to be a spirited debate. But that's out there. Let's check the guns at the door here and do the right thing. And then we can all go home and run on the winds. It's, it's really a simple matter of people operating in good faith. I don't care what your party is. Yeah. Don't care what you've set out there to the Rotary Club. Uh, 
I care that you are honestly negotiating with me in good faith. Well, and I think that that's, at the end of the day, what we have to have, and I'm afraid we've gotten away from this, is that um, you and I just have to agree to disagree at, uh, at the end of yeah. the day on some of these things. And, mm-hmm. and for me to say, um, I think you're wrong, Mark. I don't think you're evil. Uh, but I think we've kind of turned that on its head that some people are saying, no, I think you're evil. Therefore, you deserve no platform. You deserve right. no discussion. Uh, and I'm afraid that a lot of the discourse, and I'm hoping that maybe that stays over there and doesn't permeate what's happening in Harrisburg or the opportunity in Harrisburg. Oh, listen, um, you are yeah. so right. It, you, you may be wrong in my view, but yeah. you're not evil. Right. Uh, what has happened recently is it even goes beyond that. If, if you cross me, I'm going to try to destroy yes. you. Yeah. And I'm going to say nasty things about you that don't even have to be true. And we're going to run a whole campaign that throws garbage out at you in the anonymous fashion of social media. And that is unbelievable because it's just, there's no arbiter of truth. Yeah. Nobody's saying, well, that, that's just inaccurate. And the uh, red meat that is fed to both sides, to the bases, uh, it just it gets stronger and stronger. They, we, are, um, uh, we are confirming biases is what we're doing, and that, that's completely unhealthy. Well, I appreciate your coming on and for our dialogue, our friendship we've had over the years, and opportunities uh, to hopefully work on uh, real problems in Pennsylvania and come up with real solutions that uh, everybody wins. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, we, we got into the nitty-gritty of what some of the problems are so it's probably good to leave on a uh, an optimistic note and that is this is a great country and it always has you been bet. a great country and i think by and large people enter the political process with goodwill and they do want to try to do the right thing and i'm willing to bet the rest of my career on that well thanks mark for joining me on Bruise and views i appreciate it and i'm sure we'll do this again uh, in the near future thank you very much You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.